Well, now, you know that some people are famous. And they're famous for reasons that you understand. And then there's some people who are famous, and they're, but they're really kind of famous for reasons you don't understand. Or perhaps they're famous for all the wrong reasons. You know people like that? Maybe you can just imagine some. Paris Hilton is famous. Mostly for being an heiress to a fortune and making a sex tape. Steve Bartman is famous. Mostly for costing the Chicago Cubs an appearance in the World Series in 2003. Mama June is famous. Mostly for forcing her daughter into beauty, uh, child beauty contests and then dating pedophiles. That's kind of what she's known for. And the Kardashians are famous for, I don't know, <laughs> just doing whatever it is Kardashians do, but they're famous for it. But you, so you, you know about people. Here, let, me, let me introduce you to a couple more people who are famous. We're going to look through the book of Philippians, and we're to chapter 4. And if you have a Bible or access one, I invite you to take a look. And Paul the Apostle, writing this from prison, is, is talking, and it's... Philippians, if it wasn't already my favorite book of the Bible or one of them, it has become again as we've been looking through it because it is just so full of perspective and hope and joy and reason for having confidence and peace. And the more we look at it, the more I'm reminded of what that is. And if you've been with us through this, you know that uh, it is, I mean, he comes right out and says, the Apostle Paul says, I have a secret to share with you. It's a secret of contentment. It's a secret for actually being content in your life and having joy in the midst of anything. And as he's sharing what it's based on, I, I get a little, I'm getting a little bit of it. I want to get more of it. We get to chapter 4, which, of course, there are no chapter divisions, it's just, but it's toward the end of what he's going to write. And in the middle of this whole cool thing, and there's more cool stuff to come, he says something, and he makes a couple people famous. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, He's writing back to Philippi, the church he planted there. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with, with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Two women get singled out by Paul in the middle of his letter for not getting along with each other. Now, can you imagine getting to heaven and you get to meet the people whose names got in the Bible? Like, Moses, dude, man, I've been wanting to meet you. Like, how cool is it to meet Moses? Elijah, look, the apostles, wow, you guys. And like, oh, here's a couple others. There's these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. Oh, you guys are in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, we're kind of in the Bible. There's only two things that are called eternal, that God says are eternal, besides himself. People, his creation, are eternal, and his word is eternal forever and ever. These two ladies now are mentioned, they're famous, perhaps for not the right reasons. And so Euodia and Syntyche, or as are sometimes affectionately called, odorous and stinky, You know, there's no other mention of them in all the scripture just here. Now, and, and let's be fair, it's not all bad, right? Because he does say, help these women who've contended at my side 
in the cause. So they got that going for them. But it raises a question. God, it's important enough, what was going on with these two ladies. Now, if it's true, and I believe it's true, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that God has given this, this volume represents when he has said, I'm going to give you truth that's absolute, truth that encompasses what I need you to know, what I want you to know about knowing me and living a life with me. If, if, if that is true, God decided that it's important enough that what was going on with these two women was important enough to insert it in the middle of this letter. And it raises, I wonder, why would he do that? Why would he consider this that important? And I, this is speculation, but this is why I think. Because in the context of, of understanding that a, the right connection with God through his son Jesus, a connection that understands and lives out the truth, the triplet of truths we saw in chapter 1, that God is good all the time. God is good. God is in control all the time over everything that's happening in our lives, everything that, even the tough stuff. And God will prevail. If that triplet, when that triplet of truths is, is lived out in our lives, it alters our perspective on everything, or it can anyway. As it does, it also has implication into real, regular, everyday life. So that dealing with conflict well is something that can come out of that. And the way we deal with con- conflict as a follower of God through his son can be so distinct from everything that's modeled for us, so opposite of what we see, so healthy that it, it can be something that, while it's rare, it's something we can experience. Now, we don't know what this conflict was over. It doesn't say. I'm guessing it doesn't really matter in terms of what we can learn from it. But it's important enough to mention, and it's important enough to invoke help in it. So when Paul writes, he says, he calls on, now, and the word that that in my translation says loyal yoke yoke fellow, some people um, think that that might be actually a name, that the word, the name would be syzygis, which might sound like another name, but doesn't really, wouldn't be common if it is. Some people just think he's making reference to a loyal yoke fellow that might be Epaphroditus, who we mentioned earlier, who's the probably the bearer of the letter, or, or perhaps some others. But it's, a, it's important enough to actually in, invoke that person's help. Help these ladies live this out so that when they, live, when they enter into conflict, something distinct can happen. Something gets affected by their relationship with Jesus Christ. And it highlights a very real-life truth that the Bible does not do anything about masking. It, it's, out, it's obvious about this. And that real-life truth about relationships could be summarized this way. Given enough time and contact, everyone will eventually get on your nerves. It's just true. In a marriage, parent and child relationship, a job situation, extended family situation, in a cell group, on a team, in a community, in a workplace, given enough time and conflict, everyone, everyone, will eventually get on your nerves. What are you supposed to do with that? Conflict, the Bible says it, is inevitable. It's not like all of a sudden we're going to live holy lives and we're just not going to rub each other the wrong way. We're not going to find differences that annoy each other, that that our sinfulness or just our idiosyncrasies will start to arise and they will evoke a response. 
And I will tell you that the reason I'm going to camp on these two verses, and here's what we're going to do today. We're going to just use these two verses as a launch pad because we need to do this. I, I personally believe that conflict resolution among followers of Jesus is so profound a distinction. It's such an opportunity to be different than the, what we see in our world or what comes naturally to us that we, one of the key markers of what it means to be somebody who's influenced by God, who's walking with God, is we'll be fundamentally different in what we do when we feel tensions with each other, when we offend each other, when we wound each other and hurt each other. It will look so radically different from the world that everybody will stop and go, whoa, what is, I can't believe you guys do that. It is so important that I have a running calendar in my head that says in a cell-based church, we don't go more than a year before we talk about it. It's that significant and it's that rare. And that's why we're going to kind of camp on these two ladies, but see a little bit of what those principles are. And so it is so important that I'm going to suggest something for you today that I almost never suggest. You got a little thing on the back of your program where there's a place for notes. And I always feel like it's a little arrogant to say, hey, the, pre- the preacher goes, you know, you should take notes because what I got is so profound that you should have notes about it. You should not just hear it. You should actually, you know, archive it somehow. All right, I'm just going to come out and say today, forgive me for this. I think you should take notes today. I really do. I want to suggest that. And here's what I want to suggest you do, whether on that or some other way, or you can do it on electronic advice. But I would suggest that you number one to seven somewhere, because I'm going to give you seven statements that are principles from Scripture about what happens when you feel tension or conflict, or if you're at odds with somebody, or you're angry, one to seven. And then somewhere on that paper or wherever, somewhere else, top, bottom, somewhere else in a column, I would like to ask you to draw a little box. Just, just draw a box. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. If at any time during this talk, God by His Spirit or however it happens, a name comes into your mind, I would like to ask you maybe more than one name. I'm going to ask you to write the name in the box. If you don't want anybody else to see it, you can write initials or some secret code, that, but you know who you're talking about. Would you be honest enough with God and invite God enough that if he brings a name to your mind, you will just mark it? And then we're going to see these distinctions about what happens when we have conflict like these two ladies did. You know this. Some of the poorest examples any of us have ever seen in our lives about how to live in relationship is when it comes to conflict and how it's dealt with. You have walked in probably with a whole lot of broken history with relationships and wounds and things that you still feel, and maybe some of them are current and recent. How people have, how relationships have crumbled, how they've ended, how they've been forever altered or sacrificed because of how they handled it when the tension arose. What does God say? How's it different? And we're going to start... In verse 2, and then again, I'm going to use this as a springboard. I'm going to show you a bunch of other scripture. Most of the scripture I'm going to show you, we've listed for you in the program. It tends to be the centerpiece of where God talks about this. I'd encourage you to read through it on your own again. But in Philippians 4.2, it starts with this. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Right? In other words, we're going to give this as the first principle. When there is tension, when there is conflict, number one on your list of 1 to 7 address it it might sound simple it might sound assumed 
but address it. He says, I plead. That's a very, very strong word. I am urging you. I am calling on you. Do not sit still. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do something now. Address this. Don't ignore it or minimize it. Because there's a truth. I'm going to tell you, what we're talking about today is not easy. Right? There's a reason why we don't do this. It's because it's painful and it's hard. Understand that. But understand, too, that God in your life has the power to do something to make this profoundly better. Don't ignore it because this is what's true. Every conflict, every tension that you have is an opportunity. Every single one. It is an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to love. So when somebody rubs you the wrong way, when somebody says something that's even painful or you've done something that somebody else is offended by, it's an opportunity to say, how can we love each other better? How can we grow through this? How can we understand who we are and, and how to relate to each other in a better way? What can be strengthened as a result of the pain or the injury that we've experienced here? And here's two passages that are going to say how that happens. One is in Matthew 18, and where it says, we'll come back and see more of this later. If your brother sins against you, go. Show him his fault. So if somebody does something to offend you, you take the initiative to address it. Matthew 5, Jesus said it this way. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So it's, not, it's something that, that you, they may not have done to you. They, they, you find out that so, you know they think you've done something to them. Go. Be reconciled to your brother. What that says is this. This address it step, it is always your turn. Always. If you have a conflict with somebody, if you have a tension, if they did it to you, your job is to go. If you did it to them or they think you did it to them, you go. Address it. Not doing so. Doing what might, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't want to. My nature says avoid it, ignore it, take the path of least resistance. If we do that, it, it costs us. It does. It robs the other person who we're involved with this, with, with a chance to grow, to understand you better, to, get, to, to see something deepen with you. It robs them and you, them and us, an opportunity to have something happen in our heart. And this is always going to come back to your heart. Something to soften our heart rather than harden it so that we can love more fully. It'll have an effect if we don't. It will, will crush your heart. It'll callous it. It'll make it harder. We say, well, you know, that doesn't really apply to me because you know what? Nothing really bothers me. I don't hold grudges. You know anybody who says that? Are you somebody who says that? I don't, I don't hold grudges. Oh, that's wishful thinking, and most of us like to think that's true of us, but it's not. Yes, you hold grudges. Yes, you have things that have affected the way you, you say, well, I didn't. What we mean by that is, well, I didn't go and, like, I didn't egg their house. You know, I didn't slash their tires. I didn't take vengeance. So I don't hold grudges. Uh, but something changed in the way you look at them. Something changed the, the value you give them, the place that they have in your life. Something changed. When we, when we say, 
well, it doesn't bother me. What we're, we're usually saying is, I don't like conflict. I don't want to feel anything more negative. I've already been wounded enough. And what, can I be bold about this? What we're kind of saying is, my comfort and protection is more important than my full growth or the, or the place of this person in my life. Can I just throw this out as a thought for you to consider? If you have a conflict with someone, you say, ah, oh, it doesn't bother me, ah, it rolled off my back, ah, I don't care about it. If the next time you see them or hear their name mentioned or have them come to your mind, if the next time that happens, the tension, what they said or what happened, if it comes back to your mind also, then it's worth addressing. Now, there's seven of these and they're not going to be all that long, so here, this is, this is how we address it then. First one is address it. Second one is address it quickly. Again, back to Matthew 5. Look, at, this is very interesting. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about how we worship and how our relationships go. And this is just life in his kingdom. This is the way it's supposed to work. And he says, now, therefore, if you are, and this is in the context of talking about interpersonal relationships. If you're offering your gift at the altar, can I translate? If you're in church and you're worshiping, if you're writing your check to God because you give off the top to Him, if you're doing that which is a sacrifice to Him, if you're, you're doing something that's related to your connection with God, if that is going on at that moment, you remember that there's, some, there's a conflict that's unresolved, that your brother has something against you. Look what he says. Drop your gift. Leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Can I, can I say it this way? In God's mind, in God's heart, he says, what's going on in your heart, interpersonally, and how it's connected with me, at that moment, that is more important to me than if you worship me. It's more important that you get that dealt with. And he, and he obviously says to do it quickly. I mean, drop everything. There's a reason for that. It's because if we don't, it creates a blockage in our heart. It creates a hardening. The longer you wait, the more toxic it is. It's like dealing with an infection. You can just say, well, I'll get to the infection later. But if you don't treat the infection, the infection just doesn't sit there. It spreads. It deepens. It causes more problems. And so God says, address it and address it quickly. Then he's going to use, the, has, this is the third line here, address it privately. Matthew 18 puts it this way. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. The first step is always just the between the two of you. It is never supposed to be demonstrative or spectacle. It's never asking other people's opinions about it first. It's not even ask other people to pray and to explain what the person did that was so egregious. It is go and you go privately. You honor the person. You show them you're important enough to me that I'm going to go directly to you. We'll talk about that one in a minute. And privately talk about this. I had somebody confront me once in a way that stuck with me because they were upset about something I did and it was in a public place and they were angry and they said, we're going to talk about this. And I said, okay, can we talk? Why don't we find a place? He goes, no, we're talking about it right now and right here. Have you ever had anybody do that? Can I just ask you if you have? 
what effect did that have on you? When somebody's going to say, we're going to deal with it now, and we're going to deal with it here, and everybody else is going to hear it, and somebody does it in, in a setting where other people are, are around, can I tell you that that was the end of that relationship in my life? It may or may not have been because I stepped away from it and said, I can't be around that person anymore, but I'll tell you what, it just devastated me. And then I thought about other times where I've kind of done it to other people. And the effect. And what was I really communicating to them about how, what their value is? What was my real goal in the middle of dealing with conflict resolution? It's not just being confrontational. This is not just about going in and saying, oh yeah, see, see I'm going to move directly into the line of fire because I'm, I'm courageous. No, it's courage and it's also grace. And it's value and it's love, what we're going to see And that comes out in in saying, you're important enough to me that I want to take you offline and say, can we process this together? Oh, there's a whole lot more we can talk about this in cell groups. But let me just say this about it. When When we do that, when we do something privately like that, when we say, I I actually want to set up a time where it's just you and me, we communicate something. We communicate a respect for the person. We communicate a love for them. Now, can I say this? It may be a love that you don't feel at the moment. You may be so livid. You may be so, you may not want to stand the sight of them. But isn't this the distinctive of when Jesus Christ comes into a life? He brings the agape love of God, which is the ability to sacrifice yourself, to give for someone else, even, even if you don't feel it. There is still an action that honors, that lifts up. Somebody will, it can, is being loved when they do that. And let me just say this about all of these, all seven of these things. Every last one of them will require something important to happen in your heart in order for it to happen. Because if you're already with me, I've lost half of you already because you go, yeah, sorry, I can't do that. I, I can't either. Unless something changes in my heart. Unless I ask God to soften my heart. And I will, we say this around here all the time. What God is interested in first and foremost, before your knowledge or behaviors, he wants your heart. He wants your heart to be broken and, and submitted to him. He wants to be the Lord of your heart. He wants it to be soft. He, want, he wants to transform you from the inside out. And you cannot be a, a, a heart cannot be softened from the outside in. It has to be dealt with. These things will require that you allow God something to do something in your heart. Softening your heart is the opposite of rage or demanding justice or, or insisting on self-preservation. In order for that to happen, it needs the presence and the effect of Jesus Christ. And so you don't, so you don't do it in public. You don't tweet out that the NBA rigged the game. You don't, you just, you don't use social media for that kind of thing. Let's go on. You address it. You address it quickly. You address it privately. And you address it directly. Which implied here is going to be, it is face-to-face, it is personal, it is relational. Again, Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. You're going to see those verses a lot. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Go, Matthew 18 says, and show him his his fault just between the two of you. The implication of that is it is a face-to-face interpersonal exchange. 
in order for that to happen, or when that happens, the person sees your tone. They watch your face. They interact with you on a personal level. You know that you can hear things in when you don't look somebody in the eye that aren't exactly what they intended. You don't have the chance to exchange ideas or pursue things or clarify. And it is go and show. Not just talk about, not just communicate. Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, coined this phrase, and I've used it for years now. He said, we need to be willing to invite other, each other into what he calls the tunnel of chaos. No one wants to go in there. It's dark. It's scary. It's chaotic. The tunnel of chaos is where you don't know what's going to happen when you come out the other side. But you invite somebody to say, can I invite you into the tunnel of chaos where there's anger in there and there's frustration and there's, and there's loss and there's disappointment. But the value that says, I want to go with you, I want to be with you, we will come out stronger, or we might come out stronger on the other side. Of course, there's a risk that we won't. That's why we don't do it. But when we do, it communicates that I care enough about you, that that you are important enough to me to feel uncomfortable with you so that something beneficial can come from this, not something destructive. And I'm just going to say it now, and I say it till I'm blue in the face and we still do it. What this means is if you have a tension with someone, if you have a conflict with something, if you have anger with someone, you never communicate it through a text. You never communicate it through an email. How many stories could we tell and might we tell in our groups this week of how, and I've had people say, oh, I had a conversation with them. Really? When did you get together? Oh, no, we texted. You can't, how many times have things been misunderstood, miscommunicated, go, oh, well, I can think about it better. I can I can measure response. Yeah, what that usually means, I can be calculated and cold and I can find a way to say it and dig my knife in without it looking like I'm digging my knife in because I can hit and I can run. You go into the tunnel of chaos, it requires you to stay in the game. Have I said it strong enough? The Bible doesn't tell you this. It didn't have texting at the time. I'm telling you, as your pastor, I'm urging you with this to say, if you have a conflict with me, if you have, to, please, let's talk about it. Please don't send off an angry email about it. How many, how many regrets have there been after we just hit send? Eliminate that by loving each other enough to saying we do this directly with each other. Mark Schaefer, who is a, an author and um, a, social, uh, a consultant educator, he, this is just what he says. The social web is conditioning young people out of the leadership and communication skills they need to lead or follow any change at all that requires personal risk. The way he said it is social media is creating a generation of cowards. People can hide behind anonymity. They can hide behind distance. They don't have to look people in the eye and say what they really mean. Do it, address it directly. Here's the next one. Address it gently. Maybe one of the toughest. In Galatians 6, it talks about if someone's caught in sin. Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, that doesn't mean you're high-level high, high spiritual, it just means you who are, are, are containers for the Holy Spirit, you who have the Holy Spirit within you, you who know Christ, restore him gently. In Luke 17, the disciples, when this gets done, they go, their, their next response after this little exchange is they say, increase our faith. 
How, how in the world can anybody do this? We need more faith. And this is what prompts that. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, that doesn't mean stand there and point a finger. It means address it. Point out what you're seeing. It's, it's not a harsh word. And if he repents, forgive him. If he goes back and does it again, if he sins, and he does it against you seven times in a day, and seven times in one day comes back and says, I repent, forgive him. There is a, a gentleness about that that says you do not harbor it, you do not judge the person. Jesus came right, and, and this Matthew 7, this gets quoted all the time, but the context for Matthew 7, you'll see, actually is interpersonal conflict. When you see something wrong in somebody else, and he says, don't stand in judgment of him or you too will be judged. Gently, gently means that love it surrounds us and permeates us as we go, we walk toward the tension. Guys, I know this. This is the most unnatural thing, counterintuitive thing you can do. When we're in pain, when we've been affronted, all we want to, all we want to do is when we see tension and conflict, we want to go around it or we want to walk away from it. And the invitation is going to walk, instead is to walk through it, toward it and through it. And when we do, to do so with the prevailing mentality being, I'm doing this to love. My heart is softened. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 13, it's not just poetry. It's talking about how to do life. Agape, love, it's patient and it's kind. Now, think in the context of moving towards somebody with whom you're having conflict. It always protects that person. It trusts that person. It's always hoping for something with that person. It's always persevering with that person. There is a gentleness in order for that to happen. This is very, very hard for people who are skeptics or people who are really intuitive. You know why? Because if you're intuitive, and a lot of us in the room, you can relate to this. You watch people have it and you size them up and you got them figured out. You're, and you know what? You're often right. You kind of know why they did it. Kind of understand their motive. Kind of have a hunch about it. And if you're really highly intuitive, then you draw judgments. What that does is it casts ourselves as, as, the, as the prosecutor and the judge and the jury all at once. We decide what the person has done, what, what they deserve for it, and how they're going to pay for it. But moving toward them gently, it counters that. Can, can, I'll just tell you this, and I, I bet this is true of you. I know it's true of me. It is night and day the way I respond. When somebody comes to me with a criticism or complaint or something they, I did that offended them, if I know that they're for me, if they, I know that they're in my circle, that, they, that they're going to stay there, that they love me. If I know they're for me, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm ready to hear it. If I feel like they're judging me or they're going to they're gonna bail out on me or they're just, this is their party shot before they, go, they, they, they walk away, it affects me completely differently. Is that true for you? The gentleness says, you're important to me. I'm doing this because I care. Not because you owe me something or because I just want to make you look bad or because I'm, you need to be punished. Gentleness changes everything. There's a way you can do that. There are several ways we can do that. We can do it in our choice of words when we approach somebody. 
We, we can choose words that are not ch- charged emotionally. You know, what we can do, we can ask questions before we make statements. There's something happened. There's something you said. Can I ask you, what did you mean by that? Is some, it, our words can express how something impacted us rather than giving judgment on why they did it. You said this thing, you did this thing, and I just need you to know, boy, that really affected me. It wounded me. Can I tell you, can I just let you know the effect it had on me? I think you might want to know the effect it had on me. The gentleness that, that to do that kind of statement instead of just saying accusatory things to say you were wrong, you were out of line, you need to pay, can change the entire dynamic of the situation. It's not guaranteed it will, but it might. You remove the barbs and the loaded words. There have been times where I've actually, I, I've done this with my wife, where I'm gonna, I'm, I feel like I need to talk with someone, and so I'll write it down, not to send it to them, not in an email. Did you hear that part? But, but then I'll, I'll say, okay, I need to pray over this, and occasionally, knowing I'm going to go, I've made an appointment, I'm going to talk with the person, and, I'll, and I've removed all the barbs from what I could say and all the accusatory terms, and I'll say to my wife, would you just look at this and tell me what you see? And this has happened on multiple occasions. She'll say, go, yeah, that's not the right word. No, that word's going to hurt. No, that word is still too harsh. And I go, oh, then I get mad at her. How dare you criticize me? But you know what? She's almost always right. Gentleness changes, often changes everything. Okay, keep moving. Here's the next one. Address it humbly. Galatians 6, I showed you verse 1 earlier. Now look at what else it says in Galatians 6. Brothers, okay, if someone's caught in a sin, you who have the Holy Spirit, you who are spiritual, should restore him gently. And then the next phrase, but while you're doing that, watch yourself. Or you also may be tempted. It goes on to say, just a verse later, in that context, see, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. When you address it, you always look at yourself at the same time you're looking at this other person. Even if it is absolutely clear they were completely 100% in the wrong. It is all their fault. They did it. It was not, they did, I didn't prompt it. It just came out of nowhere. There is still an opportunity for you to hold up a mirror and learn about yourself. Always look at yourself. Ask questions like, how could I have handled myself better Oh, I couldn't have handled myself any better. I was perfect in how I did that. Really? What can I learn from this? Well, I don't need to learn anything. They're the one who needs to learn. Really? Here's a big one. How would I want to be approached if I were on the other side of this? How would I want them to come to me? Well, that's that's immaterial because I don't do that kind of thing. They did it to me. Remember what we said about the heart? And God's very, very clear about this. This is that Matthew 7 passage. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You've probably heard this passage before. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, when we're in conflict, we're, I'm, I, I know it's true of me. I'm not humble about it. I'm, I'm 
I'm all about justice. I'm all about retribution. I'm all about making sure I, I, I protect what is true, what I know is to be true about myself. And all that does is just elevate myself. This is just lifting myself a little higher, a little bit higher. But let me just ask you, how often, how often do you hear somebody tell you a story about a conflict they had at work or in a relationship? And how often when they tell that story, how often do they, do they tell it without it sounded, sounding really one-sided? Wow, I can't believe they said or did that to you. Wow, I can't believe. You know what we want? We really like putting black hats on some people and white hats on other people. It's just cleaner. We know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. And we always want to put the white hat on ourselves and the black hat that's on somebody else. And this is just true in marriage and it's true in families and it's true in the workplace and even the egregious stuff you've seen. There is never, almost never, a white hat and a black hat. There are a lot of gray hats. Well, their hat is darker gray than mine. When we go humbly, we are going looking as much about ourselves as we are at the other person. What we can learn. And to acknowledge. See if you can say this about the conflict. By the way, anybody in your box yet? Any name there yet? That the person whose name you see in your box or could be there if you had the guts to write it in. That you right now are every bit as capable of saying or doing as harsh or terrible a thing as what they have said or done. My response when I say that, I hear myself say that is, yeah, not me though. That's true often for people, but not in this case, not with them. You know what that is? That is arrogance. God invites us to go humbly when we go into conflict. To understand that I am every bit as capable. I got one more for you. Address it restoratively. You're going to see this. This is consistent all the way through Scripture, and this is so distinct from the way we do conflict in our culture. Because one strike and you're out. That's generally my, what my flesh wants. You wrong me, you're done. I go to a restaurant and I don't like what you served or I don't like how you served it or I don't like what you said to me or how you treat me, I am done. You know why? Because I got a whole bunch of other restaurants I can go to. Ah, okay, you lost my business. I call customer service. And I'm not telling you this shouldn't be how you do make those kinds of decisions. Forget Sprint. Forget Verizon. Whichever one you're on, they're the worst one right now. You call their customer service and you're in the endless loop with people who can't speak your language and you don't, you know, and you... You can't talk to a real person anyway and you're so angry and they can't find your account and they missed you and you're so and you go that's it I'm done with you one strike you're out We do that with inanimate objects we do it with businesses sometimes and so we just do it with our relationships too You know we used to be really close but then they they said that thing Oh they did that thing you know what I just don't have time for that why? Because, eh, you know, I live in America. I got people down the block. I got a whole bunch of other friends I can make. I got other people who can fill that void in my life. And in stark contrast to that, God says, you are part of a family. And not just those who are other believers, 
you are dealing with people who are image bearers of God who he cares about and loves and values. You are in relationship with them. And when you have conflict, you have opportunity. It's an opportunity for that relationship to take another step. So when you deal with the conflict, when you go through the tunnel of chaos, it is not just so when you get down on the other side, the person is pummeled and left a bloody pulp and you walk away feeling better about yourself. It is for the purpose of that relationship going stronger and better and learning more about how to love each other than it's ever been before. Yes, we know that's not always up to you. It's, it is possible that the other person will not tolerate it, will not stick around. But as much as lies within you, Paul wrote to the Romans, live at peace with all people. And so the scripture, every time it talks about conflict, it, it talks about the restoration part. This is Luke 17, 3 again. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Boom. Seven times in a day. Keep forgiving him. Restorative. Be restorative about it. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. In Matthew 18, when it says, go personally to your brother, it says, and if he listens to you, here's what's happened. You've won your brother over. It doesn't mean you've brought him to your side. It means you've restored the brotherhood with him. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says a very strong statement to people who are not following the truth and they're, and they're teaching another gospel. I mean, there's some strong stuff. And he says this, if any, this is 1 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, okay, take special note of him. I mean, if he keeps going that way, don't associate with him. Don't, don't contribute, don't credential what he's saying because he's leading people the wrong way. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. And then you go, oh, is that where it ends? No, yet. Do not regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. You're still my brother. You're still somebody who we want to walk this road with. And again, that, that, what agape is in 1 Corinthians 13, this is what is the essence of love. Love always hopes. It will always persevere, and love never fails. Most motives when we go into conflict is to wound somebody or to self-justify or to accomplish a, 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 an agenda. And when we tend to do that, as a result, what happens is when the conflict doesn't go well, we give up on it. We withdraw from it. What we say is we move on from it. You know what it really means? It means we quit. We just quit on the person. It's easier, feels better, it's safer. But when we do that in a relationship, it is cowardice. It is unlove. It is sourced in our pride and our vindictiveness and our selfishness. And as a result of that, what we tend to have is a whole string of kind of short-term friendships that don't really go very far for very long. We've been companions with people for a while, and we just figure that's the way life is. We have, or what we have is a whole bunch of shallow relationships that never grow, never deepen. Oh, we kind of laugh with those people, but nothing really comes from it. I will, I'm going to tell you this from my own experience, and it's absolutely true. My deepest and most precious friendships, the ones that mean the most to me, the ones 
that make my heart ache when I'm not with those people, the ones that make me long for them, the ones that have lasted for years and years and years, pretty much without exception to a person, they are relationship with someone who has gone through a risk that the relationship was not going to make it. A tension, a struggle, a pain that we could have easily just walked away from each other. And by the way, I have plenty of those too. But the ones, that have, the ones that have lasted, the ones who walked through the tunnel of chaos together came out on the other side. There is something so profound and deep about that relationship. And you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. When you think about those kinds of deep relationships, you can look back and say, it got really tested right there. We didn't think we were going to make it through that. We really hurt each other right there. And somebody, maybe both of you, maybe them, maybe you, instead of doing what your impulse was and just moving on to the next one, just putting a black hat on them and go your own way, try to avoid them when you see them in the grocery store down the road. Instead of doing that, you walk toward the tension and through the tension with them. Understanding the risk, paying a price for it, and something amazing came out on the other side. All of these things, all seven of these statements, they all require the same thing to happen in your heart. You and I will not do this if our hearts are hard, if, if we're embedded in resentment, if we're just protecting ourselves. But if something happens where we would say, I am connected now with a God who has told me some things are true. In every situation I am, I'm surrounded by an assurance that God is good, God is in control, God will prevail. It frees me and empowers me to have the potential to have this happen. It has to happen in your heart first. But just look again at verse 3. I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Those who we share a common destiny, we share a common uh, assurance in the umbrella of the truths about God in our lives, allows us to be a peacemaker. You want to shake your world? You you, you You want to have a distinction about how what God has done in your life? Become this kind of a peacemaker. Create this kind of a peacemaking environment by walking toward it and through it instead of around it or from it. Got a name in your box? Initial in the box? Maybe there's more than one. What would it look like for you to invite God first into that situation and say, okay, I'm going to live this out. You might already know what the reaction would be. You may already have assumed it, but you are not, you're going to step away from that with a soft heart and say, as much as lies within me, I'm going to live at peace. I'm going to be that kind of a peacemaker. When we do, regardless what the outcome, listen to this, regardless whether that relationship ever gets back or not, there's something that happens in you and in me that is transforming in our hearts, in our character. Who's in your box? Do something about it.